We're recording today here in Victoria Barracks, Sydney for The Cove, Army's professional development resource, and I'm joined by Major General Andrew Hocking. We'll be discussing a paper he's authored on behalf of the Australian Defence Force called Preparing for the Future, Key Organisational Lessons from the Afghanistan Campaign. His study is the second edition of The Vanguard, which is a new series published occasionally by the Australian Defence College and edited by Dr Cathy Maloney. The goal of The Vanguard is to contribute to current debates and concerns facing Australian military, policy and strategic decision makers. Our guest today is well suited to studying Afghanistan, where he did two tours. The first, as a planner in the International Security Assistance Force headquarters, and the second, as a battlegroup commander of Mentoring and Reconstruction Task Force 2. Major General Hawkins had a distinguished career and achieved far too much to list here. We could probably do an interesting podcast just talking about your career, but notable postings include a secondment to the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, and as Deputy Coordinator of the National Bushfire Recovery Agency, as well as two deployments to East Timor. For this study about Afghanistan, he interviewed a range of current and ex-ADF personnel, as well as academics and national security leaders, and it's taken him about six months to complete this project. It's due for release in early 2022, and this podcast is one part of getting the important work that's been done out into the community so that we can actually apply the lessons he's identified. Who am I? I'm Samuel Cox, and I'm a first-year captain. I'm in the part-time army, and I'm excited to be part of the Cove team bringing you this interview with Major General Hocking. Sir, thanks for joining us at the Cove. Pleasure, Sam. Glad to be here. Let's get underway. It's a big undertaking to be charged with capturing the key lessons from a 20-year war on behalf of our organisation. My first question is, what is the background and purpose of the study? I think there's a couple of things. Um... First of all, it was directed by the Chief of Defence Force. But importantly, when he gave me direction, uh, he wanted me to take an independent look at things. So he gave me the scope to express my point of view, not necessarily the endorsed defence point of view. And with that, of course, comes the opportunity to stimulate further debate and discussion. And I think a lot of that comes from a larger realisation that you don't learn by being told the institutional answer. You learn by debating and discussing things that are in contention. And this paper aims to do that, to stimulate that debate, stimulate that discussion, and accelerate our learning. When I hear in your answer that you don't have to stick to the party line and can have that independent perspective, what I conclude from that statement, I think I wouldn't be alone in hearing that, is that there's potentially some risky or edgy things in this study. Do you think that's the case? I think so. Um, Not for the purpose of being risky or edgy, uh, but when you're talking about a 20-year military campaign... Um, there's not going to be agreement on all aspects of it. Um, it's far more complex than that. But I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I say in the paper and every day as I engage with people, I really reflect on how proud I am to be part of an organisation which really reflects Australian character and values. And that's a, an organisation that's willing to have a honest uh, look at itself uh, in the interests of learning 
uh, making sure we have a greater chance of success in the future and contributing to national prosperity. And uh, that doesn't come with stifled conversation or guarded conversation. Um, you know, it comes with what Australians do well, and that is just honest, objective conversation. And I, I love being in an organisation that, that allows that uh, in the right way. And that's such an important part of what the current chief of the Australian Army says about, you know, army in the nation, army in the community, is that, you know, uh, this army does reflect the community in which we serve and, you know, speaks with that candidness that Australians are known for. And I think that's, you know, true of the Australian Defence Force, not just of the army, noting that this study does speak to the ADF, not just to the army. You talked about independence, though, and, you know, that arms distance uh, analysis of the war in Afghanistan. And I just wondered, do you think that you're able to achieve that, though, as a currently serving member of the, you know, ADF senior leadership couldn't there potentially be some unconscious bias there when we could have outsourced the writing of this study? Look, I think that's right. Um, you know, time will tell, I guess. Uh, and of course, I'm not the only person that is perpetuating reflection and discussion on the Afghanistan campaign. Uh, there's a parliamentary inquiry ongoing at the moment. Academics, quite rightly, are involved in the discussion and publishing papers and other things. Uh, my paper is simply part of the discussion. So I don't feel like it needs to, uh, needs to be everything to everybody. And you're quite right in what you say. We all carry our biases and we try to counter them, but that has its limits. Uh, but I guess the point is that uh, my paper is just part of a broader national conversation. Um, and I think that in itself counters any biases that I might have. Uh, and in fact, I'm, I, I hope any biases that become evident or contested, they're called out, you know, and they should be called out internally to the ADF, but equally from external commentators. I think it's that sort of debate will really see Australia and the ADF, most importantly, accelerate uh, its learning and prepare for the future. So how did you practically go about putting this study together? Yeah, look, it was um, initially it was, wow, I can't do that. I, I, I'm going to need three years to do that 20-year campaign. And I only had a team of me and one other but I, I soon came to realise that that's an advantage, not a disadvantage, because it, it forced me to do what all studies should do, and that's leverage the tens of thousands of military people and, of course, a you know, far larger number of um, strategists and, and commentators that are, and the public that have been watching this unfold over the years. So practically... Um, how I went about it was I asked a simple question to people who had a range of experiences and that was what are, in your view, what are the most important organisational lessons? So it is not at the tactical level, it's organisational level from our Afghanistan campaign. That was the single question I asked people. 
and I asked that to hundreds of current and ex-serving military people of varying ranks, the most senior and the most junior. Um, I asked it of people involved in the national security space and other parts of the Australian security apparatus. And uh, like a lot of things, the, when given a safe space, uh, with a, there was an ethics framework around it that gave people a confidence that they could speak honestly to me. Um, I wouldn't reference their, their inputs. Um, the collective wisdom uh, was unleashed. And with that, all I had to do was assemble it in areas where there was a grouping of ideas, of which there are five main focus areas in the paper, um, and the rest was just expressing it on paper uh, and what doing what I'm doing now, and that is reflecting that back to a wider audience. I can see having read the study that it really benefits from that wealth of experience and it's exciting to hear that there was such broad consultation amongst a range of ranks in order to get those key organisational lessons. It really does what it says on the label. You know, the title says it is the key organisational lessons. It's good to hear, you know, that was the simple question that you asked to really draw those out. But I do wonder, you know, there's a well-known saying that military is always prepared to fight the last war. Given the evolution of warfare changing strategic circumstances and the specific nature of the Afghanistan conflict, I do wonder, you know, how can these organisational lessons that we're drawing from Afghanistan be applied to the future? Yeah. No, I think it's a really important question and, and where you sit on the, the, the answer to that question will probably determine how much you, you invest in not only reading the study and the paper... Uh, but but in the general reflection on a 20-year campaign and however you do it. Look, m my point of view and wh what the study found is that you can never predict the future. There's no war or operation that looked like the last one. Um, yeah, we, as I think uh, a famous US general said, you know, we have a perfect record of never predicting the future. But as I looked at Afghanistan and the campaign, and more importantly, as I looked at the future environment and some of the characteristics that aren't really up for debate anymore, they're just realistic, um, and we're already seeing them, there, there are many things that uh, are common to Afghanistan, and let me give you an example. So the future operating environment is already and likely to be increasingly competitive, It'll be more dynamic in nature, less set and forget. So that's a little bit different to the Afghanistan campaign. More convergence where uh, different departments, diff Army, Navy, Air Force, um, cyber are all going to work together. And, and, and that's already happening now. So there's a difference without doubt between the Afghanistan environment and the changing future environment, but the things that are the same is that the future environment is still likely to see us as a nation having to, and as a military, having to inform the development of strategy within a coalition strategy. That's a continuity. The importance of translating guidance from the political level 
into campaigns and activity that are executed at the tactical level. And these are enduring things in warfare and in affairs of the military and affairs of the state. And, and you'll see for that reason that the paper really focuses on those things. Because one of the things I did in the paper, Sam, was if I came across a lesson, which there was 40% of them, that didn't have relevance to the future, it's not in the paper. So there's already been that cull to ensure that the things that are in there have that enduring relevance. There was a lot of really interesting stuff in that answer. And there's a couple of threads I'd like to unpack a little bit further. You clearly indicated that this paper isn't intended to analyze the tactical takeaways or tactical lessons from the Afghanistan war. And it really is at that strategic level where we look at correction where you look at interpreting you know how government guidance is applied by the adf and how we work with a whole of government environment and one of the words you used there was convergence which flows really well into another question i wanted to ask so the study has 21 lessons for the organization and i wanted to draw out three in particular which is lessons two four and 14 but we'll start with lesson two which says that we can only have a coordinated whole of government effort when national and military strategic objectives have been clearly defined and clearly communicated, which I think builds upon your idea of convergence that you mentioned before. But how do you envisage that we practically achieve this going forward? Yeah, I think the alignment of tactical activity, whether it's in the military or other departments, with the strategic national objectives it's an age-old challenge and there's no clear answer to it. It's complex, competing demands and a range of uh, other things and considerations at different levels. But I think the important takeaway from Afghanistan was that in different parts of the force at different times over 20 years, the clarity on what is the national purpose that we are here for was not always fully understood. Isn't that worrying? Uh, I think it's something that has often happened in, a, in military affairs. I think, like everything, this is a reminder of how important it is as a group of military leaders to clearly communicate to our people the context in which they are conducting their activity. What are they ultimately trying to achieve? So rather than focus on did we do that poorly or did we do that uh, well in Afghanistan, it was different at different times in different parts of the force. But there's, the study definitely finds that there were parts of the force at some times that, that didn't have clarity on what that was. So that's a really important reminder. You know, what, the answer, I think, lies in the military. And, and I think it really important in this conversation and your audience is we've got a changing demographic. You know, 20 years ago, infantry soldiers... They weren't interested in what's the national strategic objective. 
They were interested in what's my mission. I don't care about the rest of that. Let me get on with prosecuting it. And that's a, that's a good quality in itself. The current demographic and the emerging demographic is far more aware of geostrategic circumstances because they can be. Um, and we've got such a well-educated military that there is room as we go forward uh, to further reinforce, even in orders processes, in my view, um, a, a description of what that national strategic objective is. And I think in doing so, it just increases people's commitment, clarity on what they're doing. And of course, you know, when you lose your mates or people get wounded and injured, understanding what that is, is can help make peace in itself. So it's on the military to do this. Now, of course, the military at the more senior levels need to always be seeking that clarity of what is it exactly that you're after from the military? What's the military objectives that, that fit in with the national strategic objectives? And we must, as, a, as the military, continue to ask that question and uh, I think our senior leaders and, and leaders throughout the organisation have got a role to seek the clarity, interpret it where it's vague, which happens at times for rea some real reasons, and then more actively communicate it to the force. That's a big lesson from this campaign. Mm. I think a lot of junior leaders out there will be worried that they can't pay off situation anymore in their orders. Yeah. Going to be a big focus for them going forward. Yeah. The second lesson I want to address is lesson four. This one suggested that the ADF needs to invest and educate more across all levels. So tactical, operational and strategic to ensure success in the future. But again, can you speak to the practicalities of this? So what does it look like in particularly for junior leaders? Mm. Well, I think there's a couple of things in Australian culture, particularly Anzac culture. There's a, a appropriately so a really heavy weighting on the tactical level. You know the importance of it. In some cases, the romance of it, and and that's not wrong, because that's where real life and death occurs. So we should never lose that. I think as we look at the ADF, generally speaking, we are well uh, balanced at that tactical level. We invest in it and at the high strategic level. But generally speaking, at the operational level, we don't, we have historically not valued it because of our ANZAC uh, values as much as perhaps we invested and focused on the tactical level. So that's changed over the years and is changing with the establishment of Joint Operations Command, changing curriculums at staff colleges and other places. It's a recognition that to be highly effective as a military as a tool of national power in this complex dynamic environment, we need to be as good at the operational level as we are at the tactical and the strategic. So I think there's there's some 
further investment in our education at that level is required. I think for the junior leader, um, and you know, as a lance corporal, lieutenant, captain, major, however you define junior, it's not enough just to value tactics and small group leadership. I think that's important, but what makes you a profession rather than a trade is understanding early and having a desire to understand early the more sophisticated context in which military operations and campaigns are conducted. And I think it is on all junior leaders uh, to value that I realise that that's the value that they bring to the organisation beyond just tactics and small group leadership and actively seek to understand it. I love that distinguishing between trade and profession. That's definitely something I'll take away from this. The last lesson I wanted to look at was lesson 14. It says that the inherent complexity of warfare and the changing character of war means that the ADF's culture has to evolve and that the ADF must be more integrated across the whole of government. What does this mean for us, though, right now and into the future? Yeah, I think um, like at the strate- national strategic level, it, it is about how does the various departments of government uh, advise political decision makers of uh, the optimal approach using all the tools of national power. But this paper is about us, you know, about it, it sits within that broader context, but it's about what, you know, what might the ADF do about this to play our part uh, in this more converged future. And I, as I look at it, and I, I've just had a great conversation with, all the senior leaders of Forces Command, one of the realisations was that over the last two years in Australia, through domestic disaster, whether it's bushfire, COVID, we have been working in a whole-of-government, cross-jurisdictional, cross-sectoral environment almost every day. And we've, we've proven that we can, we can do it. Uh, it, it's in us to park your brand and stay focused on the interest of the people or the nation and collectively get at progressing that. And that's the Australian way. So in my view, this is a very natural thing for Australians to gang up on the problem, if you want to call it that, across departments. And I think there's opportunity for us to further enhance that with shared education with other government departments, getting other government departments and us being involved in things that they do in their training and exercising. And and that is building off the strengths of the last two years, our natural Australian qualities. And my sense is that that will uh, reap benefits uh, in this more converged environment that characterises the future. I certainly never expected when I graduated from Duntroon that in my immediate future would lie, you know, collaborating with the State Emergency Services, Department of Health, police, 
but it's been interesting to see how quickly in the last two years that's become normalized and it's a a complementary relationship that seems very natural now but was quite foreign when I was graduating not so long ago. Absolutely. And and I mean, it it is about replicating that at the operational and the strategic level. So they've got that integration at, at, at all the major levels of converting strategy into practice. Um, and it's through that that we will optimise our national resources, optimise our military resources uh, to contribute to the national interest. So given that junior leaders have had the least to do with the war in Afghanistan, and I include myself in this, they probably have the most to learn from a review like this because they didn't actually live the experience. It's less and less common to meet junior leaders who did deploy to Afghanistan. Do you agree with that comment? And what do you want junior leaders to take away from this study? Yeah, I I, um, I don't agree that it's more relevant to those who weren't involved, less relevant to those who were, uh, more relevant at the strategic level, less at the tactical level or vice versa. There's something in this paper for everybody uh, because you can't just exist in splendid isolation at the tactical level and not a, have an appreciation of the operational and strategic context and equally, you can't operate at the strategic level without having a really firm understanding of how things are playing out at the tactical level. So and I think professional organisations, whether it's military or business, are able to make those linkages um, so that the strategy conforms with the environment and, and achieves those outcomes. So... Whilst the paper was written using Afghanistan as the fodder, the, the stimulation for reflection, and whilst it was written with more of a weighting at the organisational level, I think the nature of it is that there's something in there for everybody. Because if you're at the tactical level now, you're going to be at the operational level in the future and then the strategic level. Um, so that there's a continuity here. To your specific question, and yeah, I think the big thing for more junior leaders is to have a look at the section on culture because I think we've got an amazing national culture. And of course, I'd say that as a proud Australian, but I do. I look at what the country has achieved and what the paper talks to is there are so many strengths in our culture, including a mission focus mentality where you, what do I need to do and I'm going to get on with it. Is this what you call the can-do attitude? The can-do attitude. Yeah. Um, that's the colloquial expression of it. There are other things... Uh, tribalism and unit pride, they, these things are enormous strengths. A command structure that can get things happening, these are great strengths of a military. They're great strengths of the nation. However, I think it's time that we start just bringing into our own awareness and conversation and potentially doctrine 
that they also come with downsides. Mission focus without seeing the bigger context can be dangerous at times. Tribalism where you don't have the ability to integrate with others or share learning with others can be dangerous at times. An authoritarian command structure that doesn't let in challenging views prior to the point of decision, that can be a weakness. And I think we've got a huge opportunity to build off the strengths, but include with it an awareness of some of these weaknesses or vulnerabilities. Um, And that'll be enough. Just by acknowledging it, expressing those vulnerabilities to ourselves, we will make the strengths stronger and we will be able to mitigate the weaknesses that can come on the flip side of them. I would like to stay with culture because it is a large proportion of your study. You quote Peter Drucker who says culture eats strategy for breakfast, but then you go a step further and say culture eats everything for breakfast. You talked about you know introducing a new awareness of times when those real strengths can become overdone strengths and therefore weaknesses. Is that the biggest issue that we need to tackle, you think, as a result of the study? Is it ADF culture is what needs to be fixed going forward? I don't think anything needs to be fixed. I, I, I think like everything, it, it, it can be further evolved. Uh, as we've been doing over the last you know, hundreds of years, um, the last decade, the last year, we, we've, we're in a constant state of evolution. So I think putting it in a fix... Uh, its fixed paradigm is is not the right expression. I think, and and to say, is it the biggest thing? Again, it depends on what part of the organisation you're in. However, culture is a big thing. It's a big thing in any organisation. It's particularly big in a military and a values-based organisation that does dangerous business like the military. So I think for that reason, and noting that we already have a exceptional base of culture, of positive values-based culture, um, it seems like a natural point to further exploit uh, to ensure that we're even more prepared for the future. And it's refreshing to see that you know the study doesn't just talk about what we did wrong or you know things we need to fix, but it does highlight you know those strengths that we have in the organisation, like those values. In lesson seventeen, though, you talk about exceptionalism. Mm. You mention specialists who struggle with exceptionalism, and then you specifically name intelligence capabilities. But when I was reading the study, I got the impression that you were referring to special forces, and I think I wouldn't be alone in coming to that conclusion. One of your recommendations is to review specialist capabilities and objectively determine the need and extent of compartmentalization and or bespoke, raise, train, sustain approaches. My question is, how do you reintegrate groups experiencing exceptionalism when that's the very thing they're measuring themselves against when they call themselves exceptional? Mm. Well, look, to your introduction to that question, Oh, absolutely, it includes special forces. And in fact, that's sort of what got me looking in that area. And of course, has got people talking about it, but it's not just special forces. It, it's more, it's, and again, it's not about looking back, it's about looking forward. And 
and it's not unique to the military. A anywhere in life where there is exceptions to important rules, if you want to call it that, norms, there's risk. And that doesn't mean you don't take the risk, but you take it with eyes open. There's a logic to it. I'm making an exception here because of this. And I think we're at a stage where we need to go back and just assemble that logic. And, and I think compartmentalization is just a way to do that, where you just go back and ask yourself the questions, uh, this particular thing is compartmented or is approached differently to the normal rules of the institution because of blah, and finish the sentence. And if you can't finish the sentence, then it's worth having a look at and, and testing the logic. I've got to say, though, um, and I was in brigade command a couple of years ago, and for a long time, I'd had the view that there are things using the special forces analogy, there's some skill sets there, some high-end training, the way they do nutrition, the way they make themselves better soldiers, that as I looked at it, it was like, well, why can't we all be doing that? Surely that's good. That That's going to increase the effect. And I've been really encouraged as I've watched things like the way we approach combat shooting now the way we approach some aspects of our health and well-being and optimising our human performance. I mean, that is leeching from our special forces community. And the more we can do that, the better the whole will be. Um, and, of course, the whole is the Australian Defence Force. And, uh, yeah, let's, let's look for any of the barriers that are stopping the whole from getting better. Good to have you on the record, sir, saying that beards are in. <laughs> well, I, I think it's worth asking, the, finishing the question. Beards are in because it, and, and if we can finish the answer to that question or that statement, then they're in. But if we can't, then perhaps they're out. <laughs> Humor aside, that whole answer was premised on what does a professional military do, right? It looks critically at why things exist and should they continue and if they continue for what reason and that has been a theme of some of your answers you know we are a professional military so those who have chosen to serve in the profession of arms do you see them then as having a responsibility to do something with the lessons and observations that you've drawn out in this report essentially what do you want to see happen from here yeah yeah great question look at the end of the day producing a piece of paper is a waste of time. And we're not academics, you and me, and those that we serve. You know, we, we are pracademics. We are intelligent, professional practitioners. So it's not about a paper. There's no, we, we get no, it's not, we're not a university that suddenly we get more investment because we've published a paper. So I think, Doing exactly what we're doing here is it, that's the real objective because I've got you thinking, 
you've got me thinking just in the discussion because I don't have all the answers. But by going through the process of in our aspiration to be better individuals, to be a better ADF and contribute to a safer and more prosperous nation, all we need to do, whether you're the CDF, whether you're the RSM of a unit, or whether you're a digger that's just marched out of ab initio training and, and, and naval seamen, is take a knee, read, think, and then ask, just answer your, your own question, Sam, as I asked myself, Andrew, what are you going to do about this? What do you need to change in your behaviour? Um, how can you contribute better? One of the ways has been doing a paper. You will have a different answer to me. So simply, whether you're the CDF or Sam Cox, have a read, ask what it means to you, and in the interest of the nation and the ADF, be part of making the change. That idea of self-reflection is such a key part of what we're seeing taught now in things like the Centre for Australian Army Leadership's leadership program. You know, self-reflection is a key part of leading self, which is the first step before you can lead others. And ultimately, that's what our ADF is about, is, mm. you know, leading people and people is our capability. So, you know, great, great takeaway from this is self-reflect and think about how we can apply these lessons in our own life rather than looking to others for the answer about what we do with them. So, Absolutely. Great point, sir. So we've unpacked some really interesting lessons in the study, but let's be service-specific now. What are the key lessons for the Army from this study? Yeah, great question, and I, and I get asked a lot, uh, is this applicable to the Navy and the Air Force? Because I think it would be easy to dismiss and, and say, well, look, Afghanistan, from an Australian perspective, was principally a, a land operation. Now, of course, from a coalition perspective, it wasn't. It was very joint in nature. But this study is not about the tactical level of land operations. This is about the organisation of the Australian Defence Force in a broader whole-of-government strategy-making system progressing national interests that doesn't define itself by the colour of your uniform. That is common to the profession of arms, whether you're wearing blue, white or green. So there's a big message that I want to get out there, and that is don't dismiss the last 20 years of lessons from the Afghanistan campaign as being army. This paper speaks to the future Army, Navy, Air Force. And, you know, I really commend everybody to read it because the things that are in the culture section are as applicable to aircrew as they are to uh, a ship's company. The lessons on strategy making, doesn't matter what colour you're wearing, and I think this is a really important part of the ADF's journey of us further professionalising ourselves as an institution 
and that is that there are many things in the business that we do, particularly at the operational and strategic level, that aren't organized by service. And that includes learning. So it's important to learn all our service lessons, but we must also learn the ADF's lessons, and that's what this paper does. Is there some specific lessons for the joint force that you want people to take from this study? Look, I think this idea of convergence that, you know, different at the strategic level, different government departments are having to work a lot closer together with each other now, both domestically and internationally than ever before. I think that same idea uh, propagates into the military space. And whether it's the cyber domain, the air domain, the land domain, or the maritime domain, they, they, they're not mutually exclusive anymore. You affect the sea from the land, the land from the sea, the air from the land, the land from the air, and, and everything through cyber. So it's already converged. We, we only organize in colors because that's been part of the history. And, and you need a little bit of that in some of the specific skill set. So I think the, the big lesson for the joint force is convergence is real and let's do more of, the, of what we've been doing over the last 10 or 20 years and that's turning ourselves from tribes that used to spend more energy fighting each other, Army, Navy, Air Force, than we were fighting our enemies to one where we don't expend energy fighting each other uh, and we pool our energy in order to have the most lethal uh, and profound effects on those that we're seeking to have effects on. So far, we've unpacked a number of key lessons from the report, but even though you're a member of the ADF senior leadership, you do wear that green uniform. Does this report just speak to the army? Or are there lessons for all services to take away from it? Jointery is about bringing the effects of the military at the, together at the right place at the right time. And that's the same idea as bringing the effects of the whole of government together at the right place and the right time that the study speaks to. We are doing this jointery so that we win. And that should drive us. And I think on that note, we're well on our way. More of the same as we go forward. We're duty bound to do so. There's so much to discuss in this report. We could go on for ages, but there's a couple of themes I want to touch upon that we haven't spoken about yet. So, for example, the public discourse about the war, recruiting and retention, and mission command, among others. Let's start with the public discourse. You're very careful to describe the Australian contribution to the war as a modest part of a US and NATO-led coalition. Was that a consideration in the careful way that you frame Australia's role? Do you think we're at risk of overvalorizing veterans? I, I don't think... That's a risk. Uh, you know, what veterans do, whether it was in Kokoda, Afghanistan, Gallipoli, 
it, in, at least in my view, it was probably a lot more real and pointed than anything that's described in history or on paper because you can't fully bring combat to life on paper. So I, I don't think that any of this is about um, discrediting the efforts of any service personnel in any campaign, which is not what you're saying. But I do think we've got to think hard and reflect hard um, about the military's role in society. And my view, and the paper talks to it, is that we've got to be really careful that we don't set ourselves above civilian society. That's where we come from. It's what we're part of. And it's what we go back to, if you ever leave it. So any setting yourself above society is dangerous. And it makes you fragile. You lose your humility. You lose the power and the, 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 the moral power of being a humble, quiet servant of this nation. And we shouldn't deprive ourselves of that. So I do think we've got to be very careful in our training that we don't unintentionally elevate ourselves above society. And so I think that is an important lesson. It doesn't discredit anything that anybody has done in past campaigns, including Afghanistan. But this really hit home to me in the bushfire recovery. You know, I've, quite frankly... I have seen as good leadership, heroism in the, the way the nation recovered from a bushfire, which I'm not comparing it to combat, but let me tell you, it's got some similar attributes of life, death, ferocity. And I saw, without people being paid for it in their profession, some of the qualities, none of which surprise me. So any idea that these national qualities and virtues that we value in defence are unique to us is simply flawed. So I think we, we have a big lesson to learn from Afghanistan as we go forward, and that is to re-express to ourselves that we are just part of society. We are proud, humble servants of this nation. And I believe that better reflects the reality. It better reflects the way people naturally feel. And I think, in a way, it makes people more resilient as they are in service and exit from service. Given that answer and the way you talk about shared values and the closeness between the ADF and the community that it comes from, is that a little bit at odds with, you know, it's no secret that recruiting and retention is a little bit of a challenge for the ADF right now, 
do you think our experience in Afghanistan has made this more difficult? Look, I think recruiting and retention, it ebbs and flows and it's a complex system, isn't it, of, um, you know, reputation, market forces. There's a lot of things that go to it. At the heart of your question, you know, is, is has Afghanistan damaged in some way our recruiting uh, possibilities? Uh, look, I don't think so. I think what the nation saw in Afghanistan was tens of thousands of Australians like them in uniform, putting their lives on the line to achieve our national strategic objectives, to make the world better for somebody in Afghanistan, doing it in a courageous, physical way, but at the same time doing it in a compassionate, warm way. And my view is that the nation gets that and that in itself will either attract people that want to be part of that or people will make the choice not to. But we can't dress military affairs up to be anything that it's not. It is what it is and it sells itself to those who want to be part of it. And I can definitely hear in that answer, you know, earlier you talked about there are some similarities between the bushfires and the Afghanistan war. And I think we definitely saw that courage, compassion and warmth that you just talked about seeing in Afghanistan on display domestically during the bushfire response as well. So nice link there between those two answers. Now, I said I wanted to speak to Mission Command as well, mm. which features in your study but you essentially say that we talk the talk, but we can't actually walk the walk. Given manoeuvre theory and mission command are two of the foundations of the Australian way of war, if we can't execute these two lines of effort effectively, well, what really are we? Mm. Well, look, we, we are, first of all, we're not bad at executing mission command and the, the paper doesn't uh, assert that. And really importantly... Mission command is fundamental to having the agility to be successful on the battlefield at the tactical level, operational, and even strategic. And it's in us all. We're, we're creative people, Australians. We're problem solvers. We don't have to always look up for solutions. We can find them ourselves. And mission command beyond a military doctrine is a way of harnessing that national quality. Um, and of course, that's sort of what happened in Gallipoli. And some people judged it as it was there was too much freedom of action. Other forces did. That's what they thought of us. But of course, it was highly successful. So we should never, ever lose it. But like all things that are good, they come with a degree of risk. And we've got to be really, again, as rather than tradesmen, but as professionals, we need to understand that mission command with all its benefits equally comes with some risks. It particularly comes with risks 
when there's not clarity on what's the objective? What are we trying to achieve? It particularly comes with risks when there's organisations that have been made up from different parts of other organisations. So there's no inherent trust that's being built. It's particularly risky in complex command and control structures. So I think there's a lesson from Afghanistan that try and avoid some of those dynamics that I just described so you can execute mission command. But where you can't, be careful of the way you exercise mission command or strengthen one of the fundamental aspects of mission command, which is the checks and balances. And I think we can learn that from Afghanistan. And, you know, if I had the pen, I would rewrite mission command, of which I am a great fan. I would rewrite mission command that says the first thing you've got to do is get your checks and balances in place. You've got to get your trust in place. And it's from that platform that you unleash the freedoms that are required to to win. I think sometimes we think about it that we that the checks and balances piece is something that you do as a risk mitigation activity at the end of mission command as opposed to really what it is and that is the foundation of enabling mission command. If I've understood correctly something you said there was to mitigate some of the risks that exist when we employ mission command we should avoid situations where we mishmash a bunch of individuals together into and take them out of their usual operating environment, if I've understood correctly, that is. But doesn't the chief of army say that we need to be ready to team and re-team rapidly mm. and that you know the section, platoon, company that you've trained with might not be the people you go to war with and you need to be ready to very quickly re-team? And I imagine that our other services in the ADF have similar ideas about the importance of teaming. Yeah. Isn't there a bit of a contradiction or confliction there in those uh, lessons or takeaways or observations? Look, I don't think it's contradiction, but it, but it adds fuller context, which is a real, really important thing and a good question to ask. So, I mean, whether it's battle grouping in an army context where you take uh, bits of different organisations based on the problem at hand, you link them together and they, they fight as one, um, or bringing a joint force, different bits of the joint force together to achieve an effect, none of that should be lost. I mean, the tail shouldn't wag the dog here. You, you apply the bits of the institution based on what the problem is and what you're trying to achieve. But what the paper brings out is an understanding that there are limits to how far you break things down without starting to to introduce some risk, risks that can be mitigated in pre-deployment training or other things. So please don't take from any of this that battle grouping, task organising is not absolutely the way of the future. But let's make sure as a profession we understand where there's a point you've broken something down too far and there's a risk in it, and therefore you need to treat that risk or uh, 
user already formed group. And, and I think one of the key things here, and people get distracted, they look at um, a section. You, you even used it, a section, a platoon, a squadron. Actually, those bricks, capability bricks, are a little bit more interchangeable. One of the really hard bits is a headquarters, right? The orchestrator of all the new bits. When you start breaking that headquarters down or trying to create it as a um, amalgamation of other headquarters, then actually you're, you're introducing a lot of risk to battle grouping or task organizing. So I think... This paper is asking us to, as an organisation, think a little bit more of the risks of task organising, particularly as it relates to the headquarter level. That feels like a very fitting answer to conclude upon because it encourages us to lift our heads out of the tactical space, which is a theme in your paper, and consider the operational and strategic lessons from the Afghanistan war. Before we conclude, sir, is there any final comments you want to add? Yeah, look, I think the big one of the big things to conclude on, and it, and it relates to some of the earlier questions you asked about what do we do with this as an individual, as an organisation, uh, whatever it may be. I think one of the things that is an irreducible reality of our future, and that is the speed in which we change and evolve as an organisation is likely to determine our future success, our future failure, or how much we potentially fail in the early parts of a future campaign. So this paper is about accelerating that learning because it's fundamental to our future success and you can't order people to do that. You can only assemble the logic and the logic is there for you, Sam, for me, for the next Air Force pilot and Navy bosun. It is there to help every one of those people and everyone in between to stimulate their reflection, to answer the question, what are you going to do about it individually as a leader and helping your team? Um, and But I'm very confident that if we do as an ADF, take a hard look at ourselves like I've tried to play my small role in doing um, then our chances of learning and adapting quickly and being successful and winning in the interests of this nation are high. Great answer to finish on, sir. Uh, and, you know, just one of many things to take away from today's chat with Major General Andrew Hocking. Thanks for joining us, sir. Thanks to everyone for listening. For those who want more, the study... And a reminder that it's called Preparing for the Future, Key Organisational Lessons from the Afghanistan Campaign will be released early 2022. It can be found along with a few other resources relating to this study on the Cove. 
I encourage everyone to read at least the exec summary, which is a good five-page start, and then pick and choose what else interests you from the study. I'd like to leave you with a line from the study's conclusion. Translating this from lessons observed to lessons learned will require objective reflection and persistent effort. You've done your part, sir, by laying out the lessons observed. Time for us to do ours.